everyone, welcome to another episode of our War Report series. This is the eighth episode on the Russo-Ukrainian War. Today I am joined by John from the Defense Bulletin. I'm also joined by Sinotalk. He's our Asia-Pacific desk chief for the Elite Minds Journal. And he's going to be giving us a little bit of China's perspective on all that has happened in the past couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We're in the fifth phase of this war right now with the counteroffensive beginning this summer. And we're also going to be talking about this uh, Wagner mutiny that just happened in Russia as well and explaining those events a little bit. So really hope you guys enjoyed this. This was recorded, I believe, on June 27th, so it's been about a week and a half. So just keep in mind that some of the information we talk about may be a little outdated. Just keep that in mind. And before we get started, check out the Lethal Minds Journal. It's a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. We'll head into the episode. Hey, yeah, I'm here with Sino Talk, and I'm here with John from the Defense Bolts. And how's it going, boys? Yeah, good to be here, man. Great to be on the podcast. I'm doing good, man. It's great to be on again. Like, it seems like last week that was on. Uh, yeah, what? I think I had you on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So obviously, you've been on a couple times, right? The second, the second time I had you on, I still need to edit that and get that out, but um. Yeah, I think the people already like know who you are, right? Uh, whether it be on Instagram or the podcast or with the bulletin, those kind of things. But uh, John, this is the first time I've had you on the podcast. I know we yeah, did an IG live like, time. a year ago, but um, yeah, yeah that's, probably that's around uh, Afghanistan probably was uh, the pullout in Afghanistan was probably when we had that last uh, IG live or maybe a little after. I think so. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. But well, it's great I, to be on. And I know we've definitely done some collaboration in the past. Yeah. Uh, so this is a first, but it's a great first. Well, yeah, you want to introduce yourself real quick for those? Yeah, so, so I'm John Larrier. Um, uh, I uh, have an interest in uh, geopolitical and uh, defense uh, issues around the world, focusing mainly on um, analysis and less so events. Um, so if you go to my Instagram page or my Twitter, my day to day updates and, and play by play updates tend to be less. And I also focus on the analysis. The, the why is essentially behind what you see going on in the news around the world is the, what I'm focusing on and trying to bridge the, the gap that the general populace has when it comes to these issues as they become more prevalent around the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, one thing that I really like about your work is you're not a veteran, right? You're a civilian. So you like yep. could kind of speak a language that honestly I can't because I'm like, mm. I'm stuck in the military language, you know what I mean? So you could speak to people that like are not familiar with these sorts of issues. And, and exactly. Yeah, just explain things better. Yeah, like I can understand, I like, essentially, you kind of see why people, you know, they watch either mainstream media or whatever their their preferred form of and, and taking uh, news and updates is. And you what basically what I notice is we're not seeing the why explained, we're just seeing what I what they what people think about it. Um, without explaining a why or how this can happen, how these things mm-hmm. can happen, what leads up to these things. 
And I think maybe at some point in time in history, in past generations, there was a general understanding of why these things happen. But because we haven't seen great power competition and other things for so long, there's a lot of new dynamics um, at play in the past um, 10 or 15, uh, so, uh, five to 10 years, right? That people is totally alien to a large amount of uh, the world's population. And especially in the United States, um, and you, we don't see a lot of knowledge on that. So that's essentially why I started Defense Bulletin is to, to kind of bridge that gap in knowledge so the everyday person can understand um, what's going on and why it's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, guys, I think I think we want to get into this counteroffensive first, and then we'll uh, move on to this thing that happened with Wagner after that. But um yeah, the Ukrainian summer counteroffensive is going on. I think everybody thought it was going to be a spring counteroffensive, but it began, I think June 8th is the day it officially began. And, you know, in like the week or so before that, you kind of had, um, you know, some probing attacks like here and there in Donetsk and Zaporizhia, right? Reconnaissance by force and those kind of operations. But, you know, here we are. It's 20, about 20 days into the counter. Yeah, about 20 days and 21. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Ukraine's captured, uh, I want to say like 10 or so villages, something like that, yeah. ten, around 10 to a dozen uh, villages, mostly in like Zaporizhia and on sort of like the administrative border of Donetsk and, and Zaporizhia. And Zaporizhia, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just kick well, it off. I mean, how yeah. do you guys think it's going so far? I think it's going, it's the first thing I'd say, right, is it's not what people so people who necessarily aren't you could call in the niche or either um in the armed forces who who have knowledge of you know offensive doctrine and things it's not what people expected the everyday person did not expect this this kind of uh st- more strung out no massive gains and so uh one thing people thought was they looked at the car key offensive right or the car key breakthrough and they're like that that is this they, this is the same thing um and we can get into the whole ideas of doctrine and things like that um but that would be a whole nother that would be a whole nother five podcasts. Um, yeah. But essentially, what we saw in Kharkiv was a penetration, right, and, and a, a breakthrough and an exploitation of that breakthrough of a larger counteroffensive, right, which is just an up tempo of operations at scale along a certain amount of um, a certain amount of AORs, um, area of responsibilities, right. Whereas we're not we're essentially seeing right now what potentiated the Kharkiv offensive, right, which is this up tempo in operations. Um, and it's going to take time. It takes time. I think a lot of people thought there's going to be leopards in Moscow by now. Um, but that's just, it takes time and it takes, it's a very attritional fight. Um, I think Bakhmut is an example of that. But also just the leopards we're seeing. People also were surprised when they saw f- four leopards and, um, you know, uh, being abandoned and, and the Ukrainians taking losses. These these tanks and things don't make them invincible. Um, you got to know how to use it and let the doctrine potentiate the your use of the tank. But they can still learn. Absolutely. It's still early on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to what you were saying about, you know, Kharkiv and stuff like that. I, I do agree with you. I think a lot of people um, that really have not been paying a lot of attention to the war or or maybe they've just been looking at what Ukraine has been doing and, and not looking at the Russian side of things. I think they did expect this to be like a Kharkiv sort of thing and it absolutely isn't Harky was definitely um like a, a complete one-off for Ukraine and I think what happened is I don't think they had an offensive 
a major counteroffensive plan for Kharkiv, right? I think they were always yeah. going to go for Kherson in the south. That was always a surprise for them. Um, and I think with Kharkiv, they just happened to figure out that they had a great opportunity there because Russia did not have that area manned well at all. I mean, I think it was a couple couple of Rosgvardia National Guard companies and then, you know, a couple bars, reserve units here and there. Um, but that that entire area was completely undermanned. And I think Ukraine was not planning to take huge actions in the area. But once they saw that they had that opportunity, they jumped. They jumped at it. They essentially exploited it. Another yeah. caveat that to say as well, and the regular the regular units that were there were all undermanned. So essentially, what Russia had been using that Kharkiv axis for, and that 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 uh, that that AOR for essentially was for recycling all the depleted units. They would send them there up for essentially. They'd wait there as kind of this like um this uh, cushy posting, if you could call it that, to where they'd wait to be replenished and um reconstituted, and then they would get cycled elsewhere. Um, in in the conflict, mm-hmm. um. And I, the Ukrainians caught wind of that very quickly. And so they, they exploited that, just like you said. Um, but a lot of the units, they were un- weren't even at full full um, capacity, not capacity, but they weren't fully manned. So they were very, very depleted units that were there who, not only that, but they weren't expecting any type of major push. All, all indicators were that uh, Kherson was going to be the, the main route of uh, advance for the Ukrainians. So. Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, that's also happening right before mobilization. So mm-hmm. these units had been getting battered from, I mean, what, February to, I can't remember when the counteroffensive was, like October-ish, I want to say. Yeah, um, yeah. like Yeah, I mean, just had been getting like their asses kicked for like eight or so months with like very little replacements, right? Exactly. Again, you didn't have mobilization. The conscripts like were in Russia. They couldn't deploy outside at that point yeah not exactly a, not a great um and not to mention russia even at times so they weren't even actually uh reconstituting these units what they were doing is like amalgamating two depleted units putting them into one like okay you're now part of the same unit now yeah. and then sending them out which there's interoperability problems and things like that and um um i'm losing the term but um like just procedural stuff right that you know every unit you know does stuff a little differently um yeah the SOPs. I, yeah, exactly. SOPs. Um and so that just created more problems um when it came to just um enforce employment and other things like that. Um especially when you're, you know, in a contested area or or you know, coming under attack. That just the last thing you need is to not not necessarily not know the guy next to you, but not you know how they work, not necessarily trust commanders, um, mistrust within uh low level command was a big thing. Um early on in the war i can't speak for it now i haven't heard a lot about it yeah definitely at that point for sure uh unit cohesion was not not great within the russian military yeah and, and arguably it still isn't um yeah yeah so but the counteroffensive so far i think i think one thing that we are seeing though is so i think the initial like these initial cluster villages that the ukrainians took i think one thing that we should remember is that it wasn't on the, the, the main defensive line of the Russians, right? There's one thing the Russians have historically done well is defense in depth. Um, and at, like uh, we, we, the mo- most recent time we saw it you could, was probably at um, at the Battle of Kursk, right? Mm-hmm. Like we saw it glaringly, Battle of Kursk, and the way they lured the, the Germans into a trap um, 
And if the defense in depth and the idea essentially was that we'll 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 eat this massive offensive through through this uh trench system and through through uh these uh you know these NI tank you know trap formations essentially. We'll we we'll eat it, we'll take a lot of casualties, but we'll eat it at the end of the day and then we'll counterattack it the second they show weakness or they they or they show uh there's a breakthrough and we can exploit it. And I think that's a large part of Russian doctrine. We see them falling back to that core doctrine now. I'm not sure why they didn't fall back on certain core doctrines uh, before in the war, but I think this war has kind of forced them to, the attrition they've taken. Um, so, but one thing I just wanted to mention though, is that these villages have been ahead of that. So essentially what Russians did is they, they created a gap, like a buffer, which is generally what you do, right? When you have a, a trench system, right? It's mm. World War One. they did very similar things. Um, you create this, a very weak front line, and then you fall back because you didn't see much fight put up by the Russians, I'd say, um, yeah. for these initial villages. They fell back very quickly. Um, and and it, it was clear that they had orders to not contest Ukrainian advance too much. But now we're seeing them contesting it because it was very soon after these villages. And so if you look on a lot of these controlled terrain maps then that were paired with the maps of the Russian trench system, you see that now the Ukrainians will con- now come into contact with the defensive lines. That's where we started to see lots of videos coming out of leopard tanks getting destroyed, of uh, Ukrainian advance getting uh, hamstrung in different ways because they were coming up against that hard line now. Um, and the Russians, I, and I, there were reports of breakthroughs before, but I haven't seen a, um, a breakthrough so, so far that has been able to, that is large enough that it can be exploited by following units. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think at the most you've really seen is them advancing, you know, a click and a half, a kilometer and a half in in a direction. That's pretty much it. You got to keep in mind, like Russia has multiple lines of defense, right? It's mm-hmm. not just one line, um, especially in Zaporizhia. Like they've definitely been um, prepping this area hard because I think they've realized that this is where Ukraine was going to push. You know, yeah, exactly. And I think the one thing that's why they were screaming, and I don't want to say screaming, but that's why they were calling for long range precision fire so much, because they understood that these shaping operations have to take place. If there's one thing that I think they have been learning pretty well from from American and Western advisors is that the, the idea of shaping operations. Right. Um, and uh, something the Russians didn't do so well at the outset of the war, right? they kind of just launched a bunch of long range precision fires and then there weren't necessarily placed in their their allocation of them was was abysmal um but we see the ukrainians doing that pretty well you know hitting key bridges and things like that um that would um hamstring any type of uh retreat for the russians and things like that uh the ammo depots going up has been a big thing in crimea um so we see them do prosecuting that pretty well um i don't know if sino has um anything but um that he wanted to say on that though yeah how do you think it's going man it's going as well as it could be expected. I mean, as y'all two pointed out, that they pretty much knew, Russia pretty much knew that Ukraine was just going to come in. It didn't help that the um, Ukrainian military slash government kept on saying, yeah, we're going to launch this major offensive, especially when we get tanks and, you know, these new Western tanks and APCs. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't, you know, those, yeah. And, that just made the like I guess the finally the the finally competent analyst for Russia to to be used and say hey um, we're seeing movement of these key of, of these key uh, of these tanks towards the uh, border of Saporizhia maybe even Kurson we we think it's going to come here 
Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, that's a great point. Been telegraphing their their uh, movements. Yeah. And I think for so long of human history, right, defense planning has been done behind closed doors, you know, not necessarily in dark rooms, but that's a cliche, but behind closed doors by a select few group of people. And and also um, they weren't, the, the decisions were not beholden to it. Like, like these, the decision makers were not beholden to anyone else, right? So and, but it, there's something to be said for the, um, with the growth of democracy around the world. So right now there's things like, you know, Freedom of Information Act, things like this, right? they have to report certain things going on. And so I think um, defense planning is, and, and also the um, defense prol proliferation and, and aid is now done differently. It's done very openly. And that sometimes can hamstring um, your defense planning as well. And, and your, um, your forced employment as well too, because the idea that there's, there's, there is something to be said for the idea that there's only so much we should know. And, you know, some people may not like that, but there, I think when it comes to the, the military and, 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 and any armed force, right? There's only so much you should know when it comes to security measures and OPSEC and things. And there's that fine line between OSINT and kind of combating your own country's um, ideals and, and um, what it sets out to do. But that's a whole nother conversation. But I do think that has kind of, hasn't necessarily potentiated the success of this counteroffensive by yelling out all this stuff all the time, constantly that we're counteroffensive, counteroffensive, counteroffensive when all Russia has to do now is just sit and wait for it, right? So they, they, they lack decision dominance now. So you, and I think the Ukrainians essentially took that away from themselves by telegraphing we're gonna have this big spring offensive. Um, and uh, I just think that may not have been a good idea to have set such a timeline and then actually adhere to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, agree. I would agree, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the reason why they're telegraphing things so much and building up all this hype is because they they need to they feel like they need to do it right in order to secure more support and to keep up morale, which obviously I can I can appreciate. Right. I get that. But there's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there is something to be said for right that their ability to reconstitute uh, their forces and to replenish ammunition stocks and other things is is dependent on, you know, Western uh, and not just Western, but uh, aid from around the world. And so there is this, they do, they do essentially campaign around the world, um, uh, you know, for this aid. Um, mm -hmm. we, so it, it is kind of hard to fault them for doing it when they are so dependent on it, but they, it could have been done in different ways, right? I don't think they need to give a timeline, but I think it also created by giving this timeline, by setting this essential, uh, you they didn't necessarily set a date, but by, by setting this timeline out, it created that sense of urgency that, hey, we need this now. And then that's where you saw the aid kind of begin to flow in. Um, they even just announced, I believe today, um, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, um, this new aid package of $500 million, um, mm -hmm. in, in total value. Um, now, the defense, uh, a couple of hours ago, right before this, uh, we're recording this, and today is June uh, 27th, for those who are listening. Um, they had a press conference, the DOD had a press conference, and they did say that this new package had nothing to do with the Wagner um, insurrection um, and that they had pre-planned this, but it was pushed forward due to the counteroffensive. So, yeah, and it, they did it create that sense like of urgency. Yeah, and it absolutely looks like a lot of the, the things they're getting are based off of the counteroffensive and, and sort of some of the losses uh, Ukraine has taken.
right? Yeah, in, yeah. in terms of equipment. It, additionally, they're getting high Mars ammo, right? Because that's the high Mars uh, platform is crucial to them. But, you know, they're getting more Bradleys and Strikers. And that's, you know, pretty obviously because of the losses they've taken in those two platforms yeah. since the offensive began. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. As well as the, um, um, the uh, decision to go from uh, the M1A2 to the M1A1 platform when it comes to speed and being able to deliver them to Ukraine. Um, I think I do. they were talking about that today at the press conference as well, and it seems like that was based off of the decision that how fast can we get these to Ukraine to, to make a difference on the battlefield. And I, I was skeptical at, early on about the idea of building you know M1A2s from scratch to give to Ukraine because that could take forever. I mean, that day, yeah. I think they had a 12 month, six to 12 months. And being more honest, it's probably more like eight to 12 months period that they could early at the earliest get them to Ukraine, which just didn't seem to make any sense to me at all. Um, so it it's a good decision, I think, to go down from that. Personally, I think there are other things we could have given them that would have done the same job. Um, yeah, talking yeah. more so about like M60s and things like that, that are that would still be capable in the fight, but I can't speak to the stockpiles and their, their um, in what uh, state of repair they state of repair or disrepair they are in. So I couldn't, that may be why we're not doing that, but. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally not a huge fan of the decision to give them uh, Abrams. I'm particularly not a fan of the way they went about it. Right. Because they're only getting, I think like 31, or yep, 31. 31 to like 40 Abrams. Right. They're getting one battalion of Abrams. That's, I mean, that's really nothing. You're training a certain set of guys to maintain these vehicles and operate them. And it's only a battalion's worth. That they're not going to be yeah. able what's, to reconstitute. Yeah, exactly. What's the point? Yeah. And you could yeah. give if them more... some, something else. Give them, fuck, give them more Mars. Maybe mm-hmm. more Bradleys. I don't know. There's plenty of other things you could There's give them. There's plenty of right? other things you could give them. That mm-hmm. could. There's even, um, I don't know if anyone knows Battle Order, their YouTube channel. But they they had they did a great video on talking about um but the, the, there's this idea uh, not idea but the Vietnamese um the ARVN that how they used um Emma the the um APCs the old the older APCs oh the 113s in, yeah 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 the 113s in, in kind of like a, a maneuver at they they essentially used them as armor maneuver um elements um because they didn't have tanks and so you know they would put a and M2 Browning on top of it, or put a recoilless gun on top of it, and boom, and they use it like a tank and maneuver against because, and and arguably that's because you know right the the North Vietnamese have you know pure fires that could take them out, but there is something to be said for just having enough armor, but armor that you can also replenish. I think, and so that's why I think it's better it to give them large amounts of these Polish or Czech um APCs. Right, Poland just um they completed another order for like eight hundred of these APCs. Right. And that's going to be these are the core things that are forming the core of these um these brigades and things, not things like Abrams tanks. Um, I'm even skeptical of giving them the Leopard two A six. That's for the same reasons you said. I I was not a fan of that because seeing those destroyed in the field, it's just like okay, so what's the use when you could have given them something that not only costs less but you can replace that would have done the same job, you know? So yeah, yeah, now absolutely. It it's also the point of. I don't know. It just seemed like they just, you know, just talked them like, "Hey, do you want some? Do you want a Challenger? Challenger two? Do you want Abrams? You know, we we have like the sky's the limit, guys. Um, just let us know what you want. Here's uh, get a wish list together, and we'll uh, 
we'll make it happen. Yeah, like it's Santa's list, essentially, it seems to me. But there's also something to be said for the the whole um, like testing of these weapons on the battlefield, right? So, I mean, this is going to inform our um, proliferation and acquisition for the next decade, for the, all the near decades to come, right? Um, in the same way that we, a lot of people were watching the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, War 2020, we're watching this war even more, right? So and I, I think there's, and I'm a little bit skeptical of this as well, I think we're pushing so many of these things because they have, they're, they're untested, right? Um, uh, we were talking before the podcast, right, about um, uh, the show Ultimate Weapon, and, then we, and we're also on the subject of, you know, these weapons that have never been tested before. I think that's one, a big thing in this conflict, is trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, uh, because um, it's, per, it's the best scene in the air defense, right? Ukraine yeah. has the most diverse <laughs> um, air defense network in the whole world, uh, that I think that has ever been, um, ever. Uh, so, I mean, uh, who would have thought there'd be s uh, S-300 sitting next to Avengers, right? Never, right? Yeah. It, within the same uh, framework. So it is pretty interesting to see. And the interoperability, too, between all of them, NATO's learning a lot from this, that they haven't been able to actually test in a contested situation, and so they're going to—they're learning a lot. You even see the di- the dynamics of their of their exercises since the outbreak of the war change, and what they're focusing on, and and how they operate and change. And this is often the, the unclassified anything that's unclassified or in a press release that I'm pulling from. But even from those documents, you're able to see a difference. Uh, NATO's um, um, losing the name of the strategy, but NATO's strategy for the upcoming uh, year has also changed drastically too. So there's a lot of people watching this. And I think that is where, that is some of the motivation for like the random, like 31 tanks being sent over. Cause we want to see how these things work. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I wanted to go back to that point you made about the Challenger. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I actually forgot that they had Challengers. Uh, just looking at the Oryx list, they have 14. They have half of the battalion of Challengers. Why? Why do they have... What are you going to do with that? Half a battalion, right? a couple companies worth of challengers. So that's another logistics strain that you have to figure out. Uh, another completely different platform that your maintainers have to get trained on and, and your crewmen trained on as well for half a battalion. It's, it, that, yeah. no, the cost benefit, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, also, you mentioned the logistics. That's a great point. Um, yeah. Because where where, and how are they going to fix these things, right? Because Russia can reach out and touch um, anywhere within Ukraine, right? And that, that's why there's so much conversations about um, basing aircraft and things in Poland and basing them elsewhere and putting these um, factories in Poland and not Ukraine and whatnot because they, they're not safe from and because the air is still contested. Um, the, Arguably, Russia doesn't have air superiority, but more so than Russia, Ukraine doesn't have air superiority um, or control of the air. So that's a big, huge thing. And I think people think, okay, maybe they'll get F-16s. There will be, but I don't think so either for different reasons. But um, I, th- I by having all this these massive amalgamations, right? the air defense works because you can have two different air defense systems work in the same framework, but two different sizes of tanks that don't work differently and are made for different things don't necessarily work in the same unit i just don't see how that's gonna be any better for the ukrainians um on the battlefield yeah i I don't think it adds a whole lot of um a a whole lot of benefits 
Yeah, because they've they had like a uh, it's just to me going back to my previous points. It's like Ego, Ava Abrams, Challenger, uh, AMX, etc. Without any notion of logistics, like you pointed out. And to to me, it just almost seems like a political decision. They just don't they just don't understand the fact that you can't just put all these things together and expect them to run effectively. Yeah, man, and I think a, a huge part of the decision to give them challengers and Abrams had to do with all all the people on Twitter. To including yeah. the Ukrainian government, right? Free mm-hmm. the Leopards, free the Abrams, free the Challengers, right? Give us a challenge. Free the F-16. Yeah, free the X- F-16. And you have like millions of people echoing these calls. And I think that played a big part in why these decisions were made. And it's like, okay, you freed 14 Challengers now. What do yeah. you really get it's- from that? Again, going back to what we were talking about before, you could have used the money or, you know, the whatever those 14 challengers are worth in in pounds you could use those notional pounds to give them a a different system that will actually be useful to them you could have given them more more air defense systems which they desperately need they desperately need more air defense you could have given them some apcs like i i think the warriors is what they got from the uk plenty of other things you could have given them for what those 14 challengers cost Mm-hmm. Or also, um, the, a lot of this money can go for to help Ukrainians develop their own industry, um, and, and uh, in in ways I'm not necessarily sure about how this could go about, but in ways that uh, the Russians can't get at with their long range precision fires, whether it's underground or other ways. But I think that that's mm-hmm. a discussion that does need to be had. I I would assume it's being had right at at, at upper echelons. Um, I hope it is. Um, you know, uh, Ukrainians essentially being able to defend themselves because the the conversation is coming soon. Especially, it's, and it's going to come. You're going to hear this conversation more and more as the U.S. election comes up next year. But um, this, you know, the the in the sense of how long can we sustain this, right? Um, before we start to um, neglect our other um, security needs. And well, I mean, uh, well, I mean, we already are in a weird way starting to see that because one, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned this before, or either you or or analyzed mentioned this before is the fact that uh germany only has x number of he left which is like yeah twenty thousand rounds specifically which is nothing sorry exactly that's 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 like what a day on the ukrainian line yeah i mean they they easily use that up in in a couple weeks during buck move right i mean that's that is absolutely nothing yeah, yeah. And and we've seen studies right coming out from from uh, multiple NGOs saying show, showing the U.S. you know stockpiles of long range precision fires and how it will last a week, right? In any type of um, great power mm-hmm. conflict in the Pacific, which is not a good thing at all. And you see how this war has taken uh, by surprise the defense industry of of the, essentially the whole world. Uh, ironically, yeah. it seems like everybody but South Korea. Um, wasn't prepared for this, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which makes no sense at all, right? But uh, it's like, but um, yeah, but I, mean, I think Germany, especially, um, you see that the NATO, uh, the NATO defense planning process has been revised like fourteen times in the past year and a half. 
mm-hmm. because they weren't prepared for this at all. And spe- specifically on and f- from an industry standpoint, um, even when they uh, kicked up at the, the, the end, there was an up-tempo in uh, industry production. They still weren't. They still didn't meet standards or, or meet the goals or the needs of the Ukrainian armed forces. And this is just one area, right? Imagine yeah. a war the size of World War One and World War Two. It, it we and and how quick the conflict began and operations began. Uh, more so speaking of World War One because there's a whole idea of the phony war of World War Two. But no, that they would have stopped fighting after a week because we wouldn't. Nobody would be able to produce the amount of uh, rounds and ammunition to keep fighting. Um, yeah, so I absolutely. think that's a big thing that needs to change. I think. I mean, how much does does our you know defense industry produce i want to say it's like fifteen thousand rounds a month i think yeah and, and yeah and with the uh which um the um with the 155 ammo you know they were struggling uh-huh. to do that to produce that and that's why we had to uh pair production with uh south korea and other and other countries to f- fill our back stocks of these uh th- these uh stockpiles um and the same can be said for our shipbuilding industry as well right um af- around the world is uh has been severely neglected um, and we're just starting to get slowly the gears are turning to get back on track with the effective shipbuilding process. But this has been something that not only the Marine Corps, but the Navy has been screaming about for years since before the sequestration. And that just kind of put the nail in the coffin for it. The sequester did. Um, and so it's, it's kind of late to be getting on it, but it's better late than never. Yeah, I think yeah. this war is teaching us a lot of lessons. Uh in regards to our, our defense industry, right? And I hope we're learning them. I mean, even you talked about the Marine Corps, right? There was that story when the invasion began um, where the U.S. government wanted to send a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, to uh, the region, I think around the Baltic area, I believe. And mm-hmm. they, they didn't have anybody ready, so they couldn't send anybody. It's like, that Not is to... the point. Like, that's the point of the, the Marine point of Corps. A MU. Like, you need yeah. to be able to deploy a MU anywhere around the world within 24 hours. If you can't yeah. do that, then that is a big issue. Yeah, and I think it wasn't necessarily that the, they didn't have the force to do it, but it was the, it's the amphibious uh, ship capabilities. They didn't have those, right? Which yeah. is something also yeah. that the Marine Corps and the Navy have been screaming about, and that, that was, I believe, that ended up on the unfunded list. Well, it's kind of interesting because um, more so, it was more so the... Um, it's more so the uh, Marine Corps than the Navy to, you know, cry about amphibious, amphibious shipping. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of it because, you know, they honestly don't care because, you know, big ship, big ship goes boom. It's not, that's not it. It's instead of that, it's big ship carries a bunch of Marines around the Med or Pacific places. It's something we really don't care about in the larger mm-hmm. scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But to bring it back to Ukraine just a bit, I would say that, right, kind of what you said is big things go boom, right? They're essentially thinking about it in a cost measure, right? And so if you see Ukraine saying anything you give me, I need it because we'll use it. it, And I think countries who aren't in any type of great power conflict, who don't have to um, uh, necessarily come up against this level of attrition on their forces and and their hardware, are so used to trying to cut costs as being the big thing that we're worrying about and not trying to cut losses or win a war, right? Um, yeah. And, yeah, and I think once we, and I, I'm not praying for it to happen anytime soon, but once we do come into contact with this or we learn the lessons from Ukraine, 
will start to realize that it, it's if you don't have the force to win the war in the first place, you won't be crying about um your cost because you won't be there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I agree, but um but you know, before people and it's unfortunately war or like um something really bad or a or something catastrophic has to be has to be done before people, you know, wake up to the fact that we're totally unprepared. You have, I mean, World War II, look, look at World War II, like lead up, everyone knew a war was coming, but mm -hmm. they just didn't want to face it. Um, they've, I mean, up until uh, what, uh, 1939 in Europe, um, they, uh, the U.S., the U.K., and France thought, you know, uh, Germany was a threat. It wasn't, you know, wasn't that much of a threat until, you know, they crossed into Poland. Yeah, and then, exactly. And then, uh, and then on the flip side, the Pacific, they, uh, you, you know, the the Philip, uh, the Japan and the United States had their issues, but they kind of figured, you know, we can, we can, you know, get through this. And it took, you know, 3,000 people dying in the, um, uh, approximately, in Pearl Harbor and the Japanese, uh, Japanese military destroying, crippling our forces in the Philippines and other areas of the Pacific to make us realize that, oh, well, I'm prepared. Yeah. Yeah, and I think going back to Ukraine, you see those same sorts of attitudes, um, you know, right before the invasion began, right? A lot of people thought it would not happen. Like, absolutely not. We we live in this age where, uh, you know, conventional wars between, between nation states is not a thing anymore. There's no way Russia is going to invade, right? Even, yeah. even given, like, all the clear evidence that Russia was going to invade being right in front of their faces. And most people could not come to terms with the fact that this has actually happened. I mean, Russia moved 80% or sorry, 85% of their battalion tactical groups to the border of Ukraine, all the way from the far East with the border of North Korea to the border of Ukraine. They spent a ton of money doing this. They were moving like blood supplies to the border too, which is like, if this was a training exercise they wouldn't be having like all these uh you know yeah. like blood transfusions being getting ready exactly yeah. yeah i think they were talking about certain indicators right and, and the crazy thing is they were talking about these indicators saying okay this is what you need to look for the blood being one of them um mm -hmm. if you or, or and also the dispersion of units to pre um to, to like pre-jump off points they said look for 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 the as how imminent this may be. And we saw one by one, slowly but surely over the months, we saw these things getting ticked off one by one. And there was no change, not yeah. not a real change, not only in our policy and how we dealt with the issue, but also our deterrence posture and our force posture in Europe did not really change much at all. Um, and I think, I think and this is just an opinion of, of mine, I personally believe that if we had put just one unit of anything, um, and maybe like an international non-NATO uh, framework that, could have been made to put forces on the ground to Ukraine, and then it would give Putin a decision. If you attack Ukraine, you attack all of Europe at the same time. And 
that that decision was not made and it was floated a lot by a lot of people, but no one adhered. And I think there does need to be a massive change when it comes to deterrence policy, because the current uh, deterrence policy of Western nations um, showed us exactly why um, people uh, are um, not a fan of appeasement um, because uh, Macron himself, right? We were talking about Macron before the podcast. Macron, uh, his actions directly before the war were very Neville Chamberlain-esque, right? Before the Second World War. I mean, when he came back, he wasn't necessarily waving a paper um, in the air saying, this is peace in our time, but he was essentially touting his visit as him having talked Putin down and very soon after Putin moved, uh, the Russian forces were moving across the border. So deterrence policy needs an overhaul. Yeah, and I mean, we even saw that same kind of attitude with Biden as well. Yeah, I mean, if you guys look back before the right before the invasion happened, um, you know, he said that he told Putin that we would not do anything if they invaded Ukraine, dependent on the scale to which they invaded, right, was how Mm -hmm. we would measure our response. It's like, why would you say that? Exactly. And what message does that show to our allies and partners, right? Because Mm -hmm. our foreign policy and uh, our military readiness is so dependent on allies and partners. Um, Yeah. That just does not show a good... uh, doesn't show it doesn't shed good light on our on our uh how we upkeep our, our side of any treaties or um, exactly. yeah. frameworks that we're part of i do exactly. think the attitudes are kind of changing a little bit though like for instance you saw that report that came out today that germany is deploying a brigade of about four thousand troops to lithuania and that's going to be a permanent yeah. force mm-hmm. yeah so, mm-hmm. that's a step they... in the right direction mm-hmm. yeah but see this is my thing about you know, for every good, you know, the every one lesson that they that we learned from this war, it's just to me that we still haven't really understood or comprehended the main underlying lesson. And I think this is more I think this is more going to the back to like uh lack of understanding in the State Department is the fact that people who generally don't care about the rule-based order who thinks that they have a divine right or a divine or a, you know uh, or a right to certain territories or certain pieces of land that they can do it they can just come in and invade they can just you know whitewash the uh, they can just whitewash uh, say like you know Ukraine is not Ukrainian. There's never been such a thing as a Ukraine. It's always been Russia. Um, it's been like that since uh, the Ottomans. And, but, and I think a lot of people are, there are some who are beginning to understand that, but then there are others who are just so far gone, I guess, best way to put it, on their own conclude on their own like notions of you know no more war over territorial uh 
possessions or over land that they just don't get that that change on February 2022. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely yeah. say it, it's arguable though that right right using ethnicity um, as a casus belly for, for or, or the threatening of your ethnicity in another country as a casus belly to invade said country has been uh, is like an age old thing since probably since before um, humans probably. You know, when in the Neanderthals saying, hey, that that guy's my friend or he's he's you know, these people are, are with me. So you can't you don't have any authority here. Um, it's, it's an age old human tactic um, that's always been used in warfare um, and in geopolitics, not not justifying it, but it is something that has been used extensively, consistently. I mean, look at the whole idea of Lebensraum with um, Germany, not saying that this mm -hmm. is the same thing, uh, because they're, I have seen people try and. and say the two are the same thing and they are very 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 different right by saying yeah. that you're mistreating my ethnic population within this country so therefore i'm going to invade you and saying my people have then then saying my people have the right to live in this country and i'm going to kill all of you or you leave this country so so my people can live it's two different things but ethnicity as a casus belly is a commonly used thing um yeah and i don't himself used it right yeah in, uh, exactly in czechoslovakia and um in austria yeah, yeah exactly the whole idea of, of of that i mean that's how he annexed both of those countries um and uh then Lebensraum was what he used as a justification for the rest of any country that the countries he was fighting um and i do there is a difference between that and russia but the the ethnic portion of it is is a big thing um it, it's just ironic though that he used uh that he called them nazis i, I feel like he could have used other justifications other than the Nazi one. I, I know there are elements of neo-Nazi elements within, you know, Azov and other and other um, units uh, that generally paramilitary units within the Ukraine that have been amalgamated into the Ukrainian armed forces. But the idea that um, their Jewish president is fomenting, you know, a Nazi, <laughs> some type of na Nazi regime, it's just a little bit of a joke. Um, and I, I can't speak to the extent that the Russian people believe it or even really care. Um, so... Yeah, well, it is. I mean, it is this uh, this word that once you use that to justify your cause, I mean, that's kind of that's it. Yeah, right? you don't really have to do a lot of work because I mean, calling mm -hmm. somebody a Nazi in Eastern Europe means so much more than it mm -hmm. does calling somebody a Nazi like here in America. Right. That's probably yeah. one of the worst things you could call somebody uh, in in Eastern Europe. Right. Just because of the history they had with Nazi yeah. Germany in, you know, the Second World War. And then as well as, um, you know, these basically collaborators that work with the Nazis during during the time on the Eastern Front as well. Exactly. Yeah. Even in East Asia, look at China, right? It, it, China saw the Nazis as, and, and Germany is turning their back on them because who trained their 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 military were the Germans. Yeah. The, the, like German stormtroopers trained them um, so that they mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, you know, they're getting attacked by a country that's not not aligned, but allied with nazi germany so even even in east asia they don't have a good life so i mean that's the one thing that's like the unifying thing around the whole world is if you name drop the nazis everyone's gonna hate them yeah i mean regarding the the uh, german uh training of uh chinese division in the lead up of world war ii they um they actually went there on their own okay so that was that was a private entity that did that uh Yes and no. Um, the the German government at the time 
both pre and post Hitler. Um, Dave didn't stop them, but they didn't approve of it because they knew that, you know, if they're going to teach them a German doctrine on how to fight like Germans, they're going to have to be armed like Germans. So, and during that time, you know, the Weimar Republic desperately needed anything, um, any type of funding, any type yeah. of uh, investment. So uh, that's what they seen that as. But um, what was really the, um, but you were right with the whole, um, the Germans um, were interestingly sided with uh, Japan. You kind of seen it during the Battle of Shanghai when you know they people wearing German 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 style military uniforms and in, to include the uh, iconic helmets were fighting against the uh, Imperial Japanese military and their their version of Marine Corps. But it kind of it kind of caused. Uh, kind of caught to the head when they're in the rape of Nanking when a Nazi official stopped, like literally stopped a lot of those atrocities from occurring or, or, and or have recorded them for prosperity, for the lack of a better term. And so that's the reason why you kind of seen this tampering down support because one, the Germans, they were increasingly um, aligned with Japan, but then also um, they they didn't want to necessarily know, or the Japanese didn't necessarily want them to discover what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, not that they were subtle about going about it. But... That is true, but um, it also didn't help when um, John Rabai, I believe that's his name, uh, made five, three to five uh, rolls of film. Like the, like the person actually, a, a lot of the stuff that we know about the uh, rape and Nanking was because of him. And a lot of, uh, even from, even uh, whenever, whenever it was occurring, all the way up to even now, when people were just rediscovering it, so to speak. That's, that's I actually didn't know that. Yeah, um, which is kind of ironic that then, then the Nazis then went on and. But I, I guess there is something to be said, right? Because the I know a large portion of the Nazi Party were only party members because they had to be, right? Like if you wanted a position, of, if you wanted to hold position within the government, you needed to be a Nazi, a Nazi Party member. Um, yeah. Because uh, there are a lot of people who were very skeptical of things like the Final Solution and whatnot. Um, uh, even prominent people, people like Erwin Rommel, right? Who ended up, I mean, we all know how he met his demise. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things in which it's kind of interesting to, you know, research, um, to research how many people were ardent Nazis. Yeah. To like the people who just didn't, who had to do it just to, to survive. Yeah. Just to maintain their job. And I don't want, I don't know if I can make the same comparison with the um, the various you know fascist slash neo Nazi uh, units on both sides, but you kind of see that with both 
more so Ukraine, um, of them co-op have needing to co-op these units just to be able to maintain their uh, just be able to maintain their army or operations. Yeah, it's kind of like you take what you can get type of thing, and we kind of saw that with them amalgamating Azov into into their armed forces. Um, it doesn't mean that the and so of course you know Russia has used that as well. See, there there's the Nazis right there, um, and their 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 presence is even a small part of just um just Azov. So yeah, no, it's it's kind of funny because you know. You know, while uh, while Russia is like saying, "Oh, well, look at the Nazis! Look at the Nazis! They're all Nazis. You, we need to go in there and kill them all." And then, you know, the photos come out of uh, of a person literally getting a an SS uniform tattooed on his body. If I'm not mistaken, or like people. Yeah, well, there's are... a guy from Wagner too, Dmitry Utkin, who's like yeah. I think one of the founders, and he's got you know like the SS lightning bolts, and he had uh, some other like Nazi symbol, I think, on like his uh his shoulder. Yeah. yeah so it, it, it's one of those things in which like really but uh on the subject of Wagner though, right? If we want to get to um the uh coup insurrection armed road trip, um and there's some other terms that this has been called uh what what's your guys take on this, right? If we can give a quick rundown of essentially what happened what we're at now um yeah well i'm, so I'm this... kind of of the opinion that it was more a mutiny i guess i i kind of fall in line with um rob lee and michael kaufman mm. on that yeah it, it's, it, it doesn't like fall under the yeah and it, it doesn't fall under the essentially like what like what would constitute a coup right and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't the closest thing it it falls under at at the early portions of this these events. It looked like it, to me it was going to be a reshuffle coup, right? So he's not trying to take out Putin, but he is trying to change the framework underneath. But he didn't go all the way, so it didn't ended up being that. Um, and I think a mutiny is the best uh, way to uh, categorize this. Um, but so so how did this all start, right? It, it was essentially through. Or, or not the, I guess the event starting, right? But because Prigozhin's been uh, voicing his opinion, he's very loud. It's often sometimes yeah. uh, um, his uh, cursed uh, written uh, opinion about the MLD for months now. But I think, do you guys believe the initial uh, event, essentially the, uh, the the beginning of the thing that sparked it, this airstrike on the, the Wagner forces? Uh, I, I'm inclined to not believe it i mean we i don't think we know for sure 100 percent either way maybe it did happen i don't know but it does yeah. not in my opinion it does not appear that a strike actually happened uh you know yeah. he, he posted that video um but it didn't really show anything like it just showed a few trees cut down and that's pretty much it it didn't look like an airstrike it just looked like a messy fob to me i mean it didn't yeah. you know um I think from yeah, I, I think from my perspective, if if it did occur, if it didn't, it, he just used that as like justification, like okay, guys, we're gonna go into Ukraine or we're gonna go into Russia. We're gonna go take a little road trip to Moscow and go um, change the uh, change how the war uh, is fought. And I think, and I really do think. 
Wagner or Bergosian did that just to provide cover or provide the um, necessary, yeah, provide the necessary cover that he needed to go into to do this to do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He needed a cat. He needed essentially we call it. He needed his cast's ability to do this. Um, to and this is something that I know the U.S. intelligence of multiple anonymous U.S. intelligence officials have told people like Waypo, um, and the Telegraph and other people that uh, and other entities that, um, there was evidence to show that he'd been planning this for months now, um, because they picked up on it, um, a while ago, um, and they said that uh, as well that Putin probably also had some forenotice of this, as well. Um, that Prigozhin was up to something. I'm not. They said they there's no evidence as to whether he knew when and where this was going to happen. Um, uh, their reaction may indicate um, that he didn't know when and where, but he did. Apparently, he did know something was up, and that Prigozhin was planning something. And I think one thing that should definitely be said is the idea that right, that you can you can't truly hide any type of mobilization mm-hmm. with um you know with the type of advanced satellite imagery uh, countries have now. Um, so if anyone knew about this long term, I think the United States intelligence uh, apparatus did definitely, as well as the um, the Russian and the Ukrainians as well. Because if you remember, it was very we didn't hear a lot of statements coming out during the events. Um, you just I mean, the most we got, I think, was like we are watching from the Ukrainian Ministry yeah. of defense. Yeah, which is pretty which I think was the best way to respond to that officially. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I pretty much agree. And. There was reports as well that two Wagner assault detachments, that's like how Wagner's kind of broken up by units, they're like assault mm. detachments, um, that two of them were like stockpiling ammo for like the past two months. And this is going on while like Prigozhin is making all this noise about not getting enough ammo from the MOD. Mm. And yeah, the reports to say that he like he would get the ammo and then turn around and stockpile it for this event. To take Which place. makes sense why they didn't have any. Um, yeah. but, but, and uh, I can't speak to uh, the size of the force, right? So I think the thing that's been being floated around the number of 25,000 is only being floated around because Pogosian said that I, we Correct. still have yet yeah. to see video or evidence. I think, I don't know if any satellite imagery, I've not been, uh, as in tune for the past day, but I don't know if any satellite imagery has come out of, you know, where they crossed, uh, on the border. If it was one long convoy, then, you know, the 50 kilometer long convoy that was said, um, there's been like a characteristic of this war, long convoys, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, we had the 60 kilometer long convoy, the 30 kilometer long convoy, and now the 50 kilometer long convoy. That seems to be a, we could call this the kilometer, the uh, above 20 kilometer convoy war if you wanted to. Um, but, <laughs> but um, we still have not seen video evidence of this or satellite imagery showing this yet, you know, open source at least. Um, I, and we haven't seen any intelligence officials or government speak to if whether or not this the size of the force. Um, they've been pretty uh, close-lipped about that. Um, but at the end of the day, the force was sizable enough to um, take uh, uh, how do you put it, Rostov on Don yeah. uh, to take that. Now I can't. I don't know if I, think, I guess that's the next step after the crossing, right? Of them them on the border, they are, they moved along the M four highway. Uh, which is like the main route from the border crossing um, to, and then to Rostov on Don in between Moscow and is the M4 highway. Um, so that was a crucial um, route of, uh, I guess, uh, su- not supply, but route of transportation um, that they were moving along. 
and we just didn't see them get contested that much, which is why now we see all these false flag um, accusations come up and was it real or not? Um, but they did engage and, and kill uh, a, a number of air assets, I believe an M8 Hind, um, a Mi Hind, um, an MI Hind. Uh, I believe they shot down a, um, an MI-28 as well and a couple of other um, fixed wing assets as well. I believe one of them was a surveillance aircraft that the Russians used for like ISR and other things like that. Um, yeah. An Ilyushin 22, I believe. Yeah, it was uh, a 22M. Yep. Um, which would then say otherwise. So there's a lot of conflicting things happening right now and all the experts are throwing their hands up saying, we don't know what we just saw so far um, and as it's going on. And so they, they took the Southern Military District Headquarters, the, which is headquartered in Rostov on Don, um, with essentially no fight, right? Um, there were reports of, of gunfire and firefights outside the city and after they moved on from Rostov on Don. Um, there wasn't much video evidence that we could see. There was one video at the early on where someone's filming like the side of a house and you'd hear the gunfire in the distance. Um, so that it wasn't very credible, but it, apparently according to the MOD as well, they did exchange fire and 13, I know 13 members. This is mainly from the, the aircraft shoot downs, 13 members so far that we know of have been killed by the Wagner forces. So which would essentially, uh, say that maybe it wasn't a false flag, but we were talking about before, right? This idea that Russia has done far worse for their own people to justify its own actions. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, as, as time is going by, I think we're starting to see more and more that there were clashes. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it, it looks like they didn't face a ton of resistance, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they definitely had a little bit of a fight. They shot down six helicopters, Right. And they actually almost got a seventh. I've, you've probably seen the video, but um, there's a video of a KA-52 attack helo yep. uh, over Voronezh. I mean, flare um, a SAM missile like at the last second. And they, they came very close to shooting that thing down. But then they got that IL-22 as well. Um, and Russia, before that one was shot down, they only had seven of those. So that's a very valuable airframe. And the fact that they lost one of their seven um is a good Wagner. indicator of the credibility yes. of the situation i think yeah because, i think so um, yeah it's a very i don't think they would do that yeah, yeah like I, there's a there's dozens of airframes that they could have like uh put forth essentially to like um I, perfect one would be an su-25 they have plenty of those why not use an aircraft like that that you can easily replenish um if you want to prove a point so um i, th I think that is a good point at that, that's a good indicator as to whether or not it was a false flag. Um, and also, I think the ending of this whole situation, right? Uh, Prigozhin essentially seeming to be exiled. I, I know a lot of people are saying that him being exiled essentially to Belarus um, and then building a, a massive camp over there, which some are trying to claim is, um, is a concentration camp for Wagner forces. Um, but there's no evidence to indicate that at all. That's totally false. So anyone who's hearing that who's listening to the podcast, there is no evidence to indicate that um, Lukashenko is putting uh, Wagner forces in uh, concentration camps. It's a camp to house all of the Wagner uh, forces and units that went with Pogosian who don't want to sign with MOD. Now, what that means for Lukashenko's power um, and, and does Lukashenko now hold something over Prigozhin? It's still very unclear his role in this because he kind of popped up out of nowhere. 
as a mediator between uh, the two camps, which, which still su- is, uh, surprised me a lot hearing that he was the one meeting because he's essentially seen as what people, some people call Putin's dog, right? Putin's lackey. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the common theme that I'm hearing is right. Putin's lackey uh, mediated this thing between Putin. He was the say so. Um, and something that we very rarely see, if ever, Putin thanked him on live television for negotiating the peace between them, which I've personally I've never seen in my lifetime Putin do this on such a big scale. So it could indicate how um, how uh, desperate Putin was. Right. Um, another indicator is after Rostov on Don, right, they moved off from Rostov on Don, went up the M4 highway towards um, towards um, Moscow, uh, proper in Moscow blast. And they were tearing up the highways, right? And the checkpoints yeah. had like one BTR, which could also speak to the readiness of the forces there. Um, I think they have probably over-focused on um, air defense because no one's thinking that any type of armed force on the ground is going to be moving towards Moscow. But it was, and they they had, I don't think they had to force it to protect Moscow. So they're tearing up the roads all around Moscow, every entrance, um, which in hindsight was kind of a waste of money now because now they had to fix all these roads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The the differences in um the force structure between, you know, this these Wagner columns, I think there was like three or four columns total that got split up and mm-hmm. what the MOD was able to muster and, and not even just the MOD, right, because you have the National Guard as well and other um, security agencies yeah. where I mean, pretty much nothing but like BTRs and um like infantry mobility vehicles and that's really it meanwhile wagner has this long these long ass columns multiple and they got mobile sam systems they had tanks on trailers and yeah the force they mustered looked way more uh, prepared to get in a major fight than than what the russian government was able to muster up not to mention yeah. when they reached uh, um, uh, Vorozny, uh, Voronezh, uh, they got to, uh, there's a massive arms depot and repair facility there. So um, there's evidence to suggest that they also pill- essentially pillaged that um, and then moved on to Moscow from there. Yeah. I mean, one, did they capture a nuclear? No, I, I know what you're talking about. There's um this guy on Twitter, I think it's, Igor Shushko. Oh yeah, I think that's who it is. Do not do not listen to anything yeah. that guy says. That guy is a moron. Um, okay. Well, I mean, he's either a moron or he he's just deliberately lying to people because you know he wants money or whatever. Um, but no, they they didn't capture any sort of nuclear thing. That guy's a clown. Yeah, he pushes uh, a lot of stuff. He actually, I was spoken in a space with, uh, with him one time, and he accused me of being. Um, a, a Russian supporter because I was talking about how the, I was talking about doctrine. Ukrainians not really, and how um, Western doctrine and Western tanks and things like that. If you don't use, if you don't necessarily adhere to the doctrine guide, you these things were built to potentiate a certain doctrine. And so, if you just run them through a minefield like that, it's not going to work. Um, and yeah. but hopefully they learn about it. And he, he was like, "Oh, you're a Russian supporter. How could you say these things?" But yeah, generally the stuff coming from Igor Shushko is not the best information, nor is it credible. So. But um, but yeah, I think there's something to be said for the amount of the vehicles and the type of vehicles they had. I mean, we saw a Panzer system as well. I think a couple yeah. of those. Um, I mean, they would have outgunned and and every uh clash that we heard of, right? The 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 mantra kind of went that they 
uh, either had a quick clash and the Roscardia units or whatever units were combating them quickly realized they were outgunned and threw their weapons down. Um, and most of these, uh, most weapons were either thrown down or they stood to the side before a clash would even take place. We saw plenty of videos of Wagner racing through checkpoints as they stood there armed. They didn't, they, they didn't disarm them or anything. They just didn't want to be part of that fight. Yeah, yeah they, I mean, the, the did... fact... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, the fact that they were able to cover as much ground as they did in less than 24 hours, this main column goes from Donetsk, crosses the border into Rostov, right? Pushes through the city, take or not even pushes through the city, takes the city, right? And then um, the main column separates off, goes down the M4 highway, and... In total, I think they were able to cover something like 800 miles in less than yeah. 24 hours. They got to within 200 kilometers of Moscow, the city. They already made it inside the region, right? right. Which speaks to the planning insane. of this. Yeah. Which I think shows pre-planning, right? Um, because th- to do that and make and make that type of gain, to make those type of gains, you have to have pre-planned certain logistics um, yeah. at all. I mean, everything from already having you know gasoline and diesel on you you know, on your, uh, not on your person, but, you know, with you as you go um, and, and planning a route that, uh, you know, where you, if you need to fill up, um, right. And you can't just fill up a tank, right. At a gas station. Right. So they had to know where to have the, you know, where they can do this at. And I think that's why probably on the route was this, um, this uh, repair depot facility. Um, it makes a lot of sense why they kind of stopped and consolidated in Voronezh. Yeah, and this whole thing happened. It went down so quickly, I should say. I Very mean, quickly. you have Prigozhin making that video and essentially declaring war on Gerasimov and Shoigu. And for those that are listening to this, I, I came out with a, like a short, like 13-minute explainer of everything that kind of happened, like as simply as I could put it. So check that out if you haven't. But he declared war on these two. And if I had a ballpark within two to three hours they had crossed the border into Russia and they were on the move. Yeah. Very, very quickly. Very, they, they were off very, very quickly. Um, yeah, they separated were probably... into multiple columns as well. Cause there's one that crossed mm-hmm. into Russia from Luhansk as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And something tells me they were probably already ready to go and pulled up when this video was released, I think mm-hmm. when did the airstrike video um, because yeah. just the speed it's, it's, I don't think they were like, Oh my, Oh my God, right. We just got airstriked. And then they all like, masked up because that would have taken a very long time yeah for for those yeah. of you uh in the audience and sino talk obviously i know you're in the marines as well but for those that have been in the military like you know how how long like anything takes to do like if you're going to do a field exercise it takes you like five hours to get ready for no reason like this shit takes time especially if you're uh you know just like de- <laughs> declaring war and out of nowhere, you're getting ready for an operation. Like, you Takes can't very just time. do that in like two to yeah. three hours, you know? Unless yeah. you're already ready, and then you're only ready because for the past months you've been building up stockpiles and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I did want to touch on is the information aspect, right? Um, essentially, what Prigozhin was saying, what the MOD was saying, and also the response from other countries, which was basically nil. So I guess we could focus on... Um, mainly Pogosian and the MOD. And yeah. essentially, one, one portion of coups, I don't want to call it a coup, but one portion of any type of insurrection in general, right, is is the information aspect of it. The information battle is a big thing, sometimes even bigger than actually what's going on, right? 
it's it's um better for people to think you're doing this because that's how you bring more people to your side right um it was said a lot that Pugosian is not gonna be able to get all the way to Moscow unless he gets certain elements of 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 command on his side and one way you can do that is by making them think or or making it very clear to them through through the through the information space that there there is no chance or that this is justified and we saw Pugosian doing that a lot but one thing that won't do is it'll won't have it won't be consistent because it's going to change as soon as the, the situation on the ground changes, if you have to change your mantra and your what you're saying, you do that immediately because it's all about opportunity and capitalizing on that opportunity or anything that's presented to you. And that so so some people say that this is a false flag, or this wasn't real because Prokhorin kept t- changing up his reasonings for it. Right, um, he changed up his reasonings for it as they made more success, uh, as they made more gains. Because I, I think. There was a part of Prigozhin that did not see him even getting that far. Um, I think a part of Prigozhin thought they were gonna, um, it was gonna end up like the highway of death in Iraq, right? Um, thankfully, it didn't for him. But um, I think a, there was a part of him that thought that, and so because his rhetoric at first didn't really seem, because he wasn't talking about going all the way to Moscow, right? But it wasn't until they took the Southern Military District headquarters that we started talking about we're going all the way to those expletive expletives, right? We're going all the way. So um, the information aspect of any type of insurrection is a massive thing. And it's, it's always flip-floppy for those who were skeptical about why he kept flip-flopping on the, his issues and his reasonings for it. Yeah. And then it, it, also, it also points to him understanding like how to properly conduct one because he succeeded in getting Putin to go to St. Pe- uh, Petersburg uh, and... Um, and fleeing Moscow, and then also Segoyu and Gomizyov was nowhere to be found, correct? Uh, yeah, Shogun and Gerasimov entire... uh, were kind of AWOL the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah That's so... not kind of, they were. Yeah, I, uh, they you be... know, now that you guys mention it, I still haven't even seen Gerasimov, like... Yeah, neither have I. I don't think Shogu there's been any appearance. Time yeah, Shogun no, made they... an appearance. Well, but remember they... that... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I'll say quickly, right, there was, um, when, so the first demands he made, right, were that Shoigu and Jirashima be gone, and the only one we've seen still um, working with, uh, in any capacity with Putin, right, has been Shoigu and Jirashima in AWOL, and Shoigu, uh, someone made the point, I can't remember who, but someone else made the point, but uh, he wasn't in uniform at the last meeting he was seen, and he was in a suit, we've never seen Shoigu out of uniform, essentially, right, Um especially when he in, in a state, you know, uh, media event. So I don't know if that's an indicator of whether or not he's been fired or not. Um, but that was one of the stipulations from Pogosian was that um, Shogun and Jirashima be gone because it, uh, he did, was very clear about this, right? This is the one consistent thing throughout the whole uh, day and a half or so of this, this going on was that his, his um, problem was not with Putin or the Kremlin, but it was with the MOD. And then I think that's this this was mainly directed at the MLD, and he was smart for doing that, right? Because it's still at that door open for if this doesn't work out, I don't get you know kinzalled or uh, windowed or fall out a window. So <laughs> <laughs> because I think you did, you know, you always got to have to leave that uh, thing open for it if it's unsuccessful, your exit route essentially. Um, and, and that could maybe speak to Lukashenko's involvement. Maybe this was Prigozhin's exit route, right? If it doesn't go well for me, in, intervene for me, right? Because they are, they are said to be very good friends. 
more so yeah. than him and Putin. So yeah, and Wagner has had a had a relationship with Belarus for a bit because that's usually the transit point that Wagner will use if they go to uh, other areas, you know, specifically mm-hmm. Syria and Africa. Yeah. So um, I definitely do think that 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 was very important. Um, his now the MOD on the other hand, right? The MOD said that those hadn't been agreed to. As of now, they're still saying that, right? That that that's not. They did not agree to those. Peskov, um, Putin's uh, essentially press secretary, his spokesperson, has said multiple times that they did not agree to that. But evidence would suggest otherwise, right? The lack of, um, the lack of Durazimov in general, and just Shoigu. In in a situation like this, you would think they'd be front and center, um, twenty four seven essentially, and we're not really seeing them that much. So, I don't know if they've been deprioritized by Putin. Um, some people have also characterized this as, um, like, the situation within the mob or like our mafia, um, whereas you know the, the captains fight and the the don just kind of sits there and watch, and whoever comes out on top comes out on top, um, which I think could be a small aspect of it, but I don't think it's the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the bigger things is the fact that Lichinko just agreed to even have a month to even uh, agree to even host Ragnar and Sergoyan because it's just so interesting the fact that you know Lushenko is supposedly Putin's you know allied and all of a sudden he's like yeah I just intervened and helped in this insurrection or mutiny it just seems like it just seems like to me just it's like going back to you, going to your point. It's the fact that people that may have been more going on and may have been more going on it and behind the scenes than they let on. Well, it's it's my like, understanding that Lukashenko is hoping that Wagner will train uh, his army because you know they're uh, they're not the best. Yeah, at all. At least, yeah. There's a reason why. Uh... They weren't essentially why Putin didn't push harder for them to involve themselves in during the northern axis of the war because they, they saw them essentially they would actually they thought the Belarusian army would more so hamstring Russian forces and potentiate them uh, because of just their lack of readiness in any capacity um, and in any domain. So um, and I, I do think Lukashenko with this deal, he he gets another force that secures his power pretty much. Right. I mean, yeah, there's. um rumors out there you know i don't know how much of it is true but rumors out there of you know belarusian soldiers and policemen like being part of this like secret underground in in allegiance with the political opposition that's based in poland right now um and i think with this deal it's a win for lukashenko because he again gets another force that secures his power um, but they're a foreign force too they're not belarusian so he doesn't really have to worry that they're working with the political opposition mm, exactly yeah it's like a yeah. and it's also important i think as well that the the dynamic between him and putin is less so allies more so um 
an, like a needed uh, like a needed uh acquaintance not needed acquaintance but it's needed framework that they think because without putin there is no lukashenko right yeah. um and so it, it, another rumor that's been also floated around which i think most of this whole event is rumors honestly right uh, most of it has been rumors so far um you know rumor after rumor after rumor we haven't seen a lot of stuff that's like concrete yet other than like the videos and things we've seen you know people getting killed and things like that we know what happened right but another rumor that's been floated around is this idea that maybe Lukashenko was seeking some type of by reaching out and uh, and essentially um, giving Putin, uh, not Putin, um, Pogosian this life raft to get out of this uh, this this failed uh, in, in coup or, in, or insurrection, right? Um, he essentially brings Pogosian to his side. Um, and so he now will exercise control over Wagner. I, I don't see that happening. Because much of Wagner is supplied by the MOD and whatnot, and if you look at the, just the aims of this mutiny, right, um, they were directed at the MOD due to being supplied irregularly and things like that, and deprioritized uh, for cash and other things like that. So, um, I still think that they're still gonna they're not gonna like be supplied by Belarus. I think Belarus found a way that they could benefit from this, and so Lukashenko said, "Hey, I." I know him. I could talk to him. Get, but can you do this for me? And I think Putin was ready and willing to say yeah, um, because at the end of the day, Putin doesn't want to live in St. Petersburg forever. Yeah. Now, yeah. interestingly enough, Lukashenko came out today and he said that he persuaded Putin uh, not to kill Prigozhin. <laughs> which which he probably did, right? Out of all these things that is speculation, I I do not put it past him because Putin's body language, right? He he was not the normal Putin, right? We saw in his speeches. Yeah. Um, he was yeah. not. His, he was very angry. You could see. You could tell he was affected by this, right? And and for somebody who does so many false flag after false flag after false flag, and it's all about persona and how he presents himself, he was not that guy. He was not that person. He was not that Putin on uh, doing these two press conferences, um, at all. Not yeah, press fact- conference, but press release. Yeah, and the fact that he's made at least three uh you know public appearances or um you know addresses whatever you want to call them since what friday night saturday morning i mean that that's saying something for sure yeah exactly because he needs to get out out there for a reason yeah which he never really does i think he is a bit exposed right now and you got you kind of have to give credit to lukashenko right for noticing that right noticing that he, so now he made he gaining a tiny bit of not leverage over Putin, you could call it, because I think at the end of the day, Putin still has massive amounts of leverage over him. But it, it's 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 it looks like he's trying to gain some type of um uh boundary between him and Putin, right? So where he can act on his own and potentiate his own success politically within the country, and maybe him. And this is all speculation, right? Uh, to be just to be clear, right? But there's I've floated the idea, right, that maybe he um having wagner um within country and and giving this out this essentially this olive branch not olive branch but this this life raft to Prigozhin would help him gain his own type of power within his own country that that isn't only potentiated by putin being in power in russia yeah yeah i mean yeah i agree i mean like it's just there's an ulterior motive like you just don't set up a, you just don't bring in a, a bunch of mutiny soldiers or mercenaries after they've 
successfully almost uh, entered the capital without a very good reason. And I think uh, you actually did. I, th I think you actually did bring up some good points. And but I also think that you know, and you also and, and you also kind of and you also talked about this is the fact that Lushashenko probably sees Wagner as a potential ally in terms of just in case of if um, there is um, an uprising or there is like protest, he probably think, he probably thinks can he, can he actually tr uh, trust the security services to put them down to follow orders? Mm. And so I'm thinking that that may have been. I'm, I'm agreeing with your with your sentiment and in your analysis that may have been one of the reasons why he actually decided to bring in Ragnar. Not only that, but also to your point is the fact that you know a friend of my uh, enemy of my friend is could be a friend, and the fact that he could probably use this as some type of leverage over Putin. The fact that he has literally the one coherent force that actually succeeded, almost succeeded in take, capturing Moscow in almost 24 hours. He has them in his country in his entirety. So. Yeah, exactly. And then some people call Russia like the, the, the land of the failed coups. Um, uh, Cause it's been very, I mean, I guess it's a good thing to be a land of a failed coups, right? Um, or less so that they happen though, but. Uh, there are some parallels to this. People have been pushing forth the mutiny on a other certain destroyer. I can't pronounce the name, um, but uh, in the early 1900s, or similar to this, as well as the Decemberist revolt is a little similar in in by by you know the forces fighting or have recently fought in the war being disgruntled. I, not how it went out because we all anyone who knows the Decemberist revolt it ended with grape shot in tightly packed formation. So very different from this. Um, but uh, there's a lot of parallels to it, in it to past events within Russia, but it also speaks to the dynamic, the, the Russian like domestic dynamic, right, of how things work, right? Uh, people don't, you know, seek to, um, they don't look to the populace, right, to to justify for them, right? They don't essentially cry to the populace; they just go do it themselves, right? Whereas in other countries, you want political change, you know, it's a very long drawn out process, but Historically, within Russia, when there's massive political change, it happens very quick and very violently, or one of the two. So um, it, it's it's pretty interesting, uh, the, the whole dynamic. And it's funny because it just seems like this is another day in Russia. Like, but no one knows what happens, right? All, all the experts around the world, no one really understands this, what's going on. But people have been asking, you know, the general Russian populace is like, so what do you think went on? And they're like shrugging their shoulders. They don't really care, right? Because it didn't, at the end of the day, it didn't affect them. It didn't affect them going to work, waking up in the morning, right? Yeah. Um, so this is that, just like another day at work. Yeah, well, there was a there was yeah. a dude that was uh like sweeping the street right in yeah. front of the headquarters <laughs> of the Southern Military District, and I I saw in a separate video some guy uh with a phone like went up to him. He's like, "Hey, what 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 do you think about what's going on? Like, what are your comments?" And he's like, just kind of shrugs his shoulders. Yeah, exactly. The guy, the guy yeah. like asked him, "Was like, what? Like, you don't care?" And he's like, everything's going according to plan, man. Whatever. I'm at work. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's like, he's like, everything in my life is going according to plan, and that's all I care about. You know, unbothered, man. 
I respect right. Yeah, I, I think the street sweeper was the best one because somebody said, I think the, the comment I saw on, on a video on the person who I saw had posted it had said, um, I think the street sweeper has uh, more um, authority here than the, than the Wagner guys with guns and tanks in front of him. Because <laughs> he's like, he's like pushing the Wagner guy away so he can sweep the, the crosswalk or something like that. Uh-huh. And this guy, you know, he's sitting there, he's all kitted up with his AK and there's a tank right in front of him. But he's listening to the street sweeper, which ironically kind of alludes to, you know, the other videos too. You know, they're in like a McDonald's and they're at the liquor store. You know, these guys with masks and guns in there and no one cares about them. They're not paying, they're paying them no mind, really. And that's a great aspect of it that we could touch on real quick is the idea that when you are um, prosecuting any type of interaction against the government or military, the biggest thing you need is the people on your side. And I think the Wagner did that very well. They, they didn't go. They weren't looting anywhere. They didn't do anything crazy. They went to McDonald's and paid for their meal. They went to the liquor store and paid for their liquor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big thing. And I think that is one thing that they did, I guess, by the book. Yeah, well, it looks like, I mean, in Rostov specifically, well, a lot of people came out to support them, right? Yep. When they were leaving, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were cheering them on. They were cheering on Prigozhin, right? They were giving handshakes to people. and Popping you know, off fireworks. Like, yeah, yeah. And Wagner dudes are like taking pictures with kids and stuff like that. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were yeah. chanting Wagner, Wagner, right? As they left, um, mm-hmm. which... Um, I don't know how much of that is them supporting Wagner or just them being like, oh, Wagner's here. Like, you know, um, I'm not really 100% sure how much of that was, but it, I think the way they treated the people within the Rostov on Don and Voronezh was, was very good. And it spoke to maybe his aims and that, that you know, he needed the populace on his side in the, in the long term. Um, but I just think the McDonald's video and the Street Trooper videos is some of the funniest stuff to come out of a, uh, this incident so far absolutely sino talk i i wanted to ask you about this post that you made a few days ago regarding um the lack of really any statements from china I wanted to see if you could expand on that post a little bit yeah so so during the um so during like whenever alex bogosian decided to take a little trip take a trip to moscow with his Mary Band of Mercenaries. Um, March of Justice, please. Yeah, March of Justice. <laughs> March of Dime. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, he, the the uh, Chinese um, foreign ministry, the Chinese government didn't really say anything. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. One is because they honestly didn't know what was happening. Um, even even though people even though they they knew what was happening on the ground because of there was broadcast everywhere and it was like hitting and it was actually on China, the Chinese internet. But not only that, but he was um, also generally the Chinese government also wanted to wait to see if the uh, mutiny would succeed or what the actual objectives were because. You know, they didn't. They didn't say to overthrow Putin, or at least very few, very few statements were going. Did say like he's going to overthrow Putin. He just meant to go after the um, to go you and Gazaliyev. He um, and so they probably so they did like a wait and see approach, and then that's after the um, whenever Bogorian decided to, you know to call off the invasion or the call off the mutiny. He 
that's whenever you started seeing, um, you know, China Daily. Uh, first, first there was Xinhua, and then uh, Global Daily, uh, uh, not Global Times, and then uh, China Daily uh, coming out and saying, uh, "Yeah, we support um, Putin." Uh, through Putin's leadership, he succeeded in crushing this mutiny or cra crushing this coup, I believe. And not only that, but um, regarding uh, actual uh, military uh, Chinese government uh, statements, the Chinese foreign ministry, as you said, this is an internal uh, problem to China, to Russia, and we're not going to get involved, which says, one, they kind of figured that the uh, this is over, or at least for the, the most legitimate threat to Putin is over. And then also the fact that they just wanted to come across as impartial and not wanting to get involved, even though they probably did have some talks within the, um, uh, they probably did talk to both sides. I would be, I would actually be less, I would be actually be more surprised if any Chinese government officials or, you know, back channels existed uh, and was used to reach Turgoyen and Putin. Yeah, so, and the back channels between the United States and China could be spoken about as well. I know they said that, um, uh, Sorry about that. Um, I, I know they said that. Um, uh, the so for speaking to the back channels between China, China and the United States as well, maybe being uh reopened essentially because of this. Uh, in the press uh, uh released today as well, they said that uh, they uh the DOD said that they did not actually uh make any contact with China or vice versa due to this event. Now I don't know. We can't speak to how true that is because something would tell me. I, I would assume that we would have liaised with China um, on this issue in the same way that like doing the uh, January 6th event, uh, Mark, um, General Milley reached out to uh, his, his uh, counterpart in China to assure him that everything was okay. And, and, you know, the government was still in power. I think that we would have done the same thing to um, China if um, the, their, their neighbor was being destabilized. And you know, there was talks of, you know, China eyeing the Siberia, you know, Siberia is awfully juicy right now. Um, you know, people joking about, you know, China massing troops on the border to take advantage of any any um, lack in force posture by the Russians. But um, I, I believe that I believe that's all untrue. No, I I agree. I mean, it's one of those things in which that's just a rumor. It, it would never happen. Um, China would rather take over. They would rather take over. Um, the region by like economically, which they already are doing in large part. But then not only that, but just the mere fact of having to explain why the, if it does fail, like, oh, why you're in this land. Um, yeah. So. Which generally, I if you think about it though, isn't something China would do to justify. I mean, they're not big on justification. They're, they're more big on what we're here now, so. That is true, and they do have like a historical claim to the to inner to um, to the outer reaches of Manchuria. So yeah, so they 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 do have so they do so that could potentially see them try to take over that area, but then also it would just be too messy 
in terms of them trying to deal with the um just trying to deal with like the new government if any or if if, if any government manages to come in and stabilize the situation and and um and get enough support it just to me that it, it would just be t- become too messy for china to actually try to stick it out and try to like hold on to those lands yeah definitely i definitely i'd agree with that but I, I think that was mostly speculation people who were trying to posit that um china was somehow you know going to take advantage of Putin's weakness by invading half of Russia. I, I don't even think that would be good for China. Um, the last thing they need is um, angry Siberians, um, you know, to deal with. So yeah, um, that that would just be the last thing China needs to deal with right now. I, I, everything <laughs> they're dealing with. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, like people who <laughs> it's one of those things in which you know you can. You can say that they're massing troops, or like China did this, uh, or China had a play, had a hand in like antagonizing Wagner or recording Wagner into doing this type of stuff. But honestly, Putin is better. Uh, China is better off where Putin is right now. Yeah, definitely. Okay, gents, I think we're probably going on about close to two hours here. So let's get some uh, closing thoughts on both the counteroffensive and um, Wagner. Yeah, um, uh, I would just say uh, the counteroffensive, right, is still very early on, right? So counteroffensives, uh, any offensive, right, takes a very, very long time. So on average, right, they're not these quick, you know, super quick things, Uh they take very long time and they're, they're over a wide, very uh, large area. Um, and so we, we may see a breakthrough soon. We may see a breakthrough two months, three months, four months from now. Uh, the, the hope is that a breakthrough does happen and then it can be exploited. There's a large amount of the Ukrainian, of aid to Ukraine and the, uh, the brigades that they've um, set aside for this offensive that have not been committed yet. Um, and a large amount of the aid and the hardware that has been committed I mean, that that has been committed to Ukraine, has not been committed to this offensive yet as well. So we still have a lot, there's still a lot of potential um, for this counteroffensive. And the, my hope is, is that the Ukrainians can learn uh, better how to do uh, certain types of operations, specifically breaching operations in a contested environment is a big thing uh, that we haven't seen them do so well. Uh, they seem to be sticking to Soviet doctrine, but using Western equipment, which doesn't necessarily work so well. Um, uh, and so hopefully they can, they can learn how to do that correctly and then they can learn from their uh, battlefield mistakes and their combat losses. Uh, for the, the for Wagner and Prigozhin, I don't see, I think we're going to see the, the tension between him and the MOD kind of either plateau or de-escalate massively now. Um, and I think we're still in the early stages of of the why, of, of learning the why. And so there's a lot to come that we still may hear, like uh, as well as uh, particularly towards Lukashenko's involvement and how much his, he was involved. Uh, during it and after, and uh, what is what essentially was said to Putin and what was said to Prigozhin, right? And and essentially how he mediated this. Okay, great. Sonatok, what do you got? Yeah, so I think I agree with Stefan's bullet in the fact that the counteroffensive is still ongoing 
it's too early to tell if it's actually succeeding or if it's um, meeting its objectives. Not only that, but just the fact that the Ukrainians need to understand that they're not fighting. This is not your uh, Soviet father's equipment that you need to actually utilize maneuver warfare to utilize them to the fullest extent, which we're not really seeing that because the uh, in-depth, the defense in-depth, and also the fact that the Russians knew they were coming. Regarding Ragnar and Pogorian, I think we, I don't, I personally think this is the first chapter of, of a novel. I think, uh, I think Putin will eventually try to get rid of Pogorian either through like windowing him or through other <laughs> methods that the, that the <laughs> Russians are known for. Um, it's either that or they make, he, it's either that or they, or he gives, uh, or he makes, uh, Burgoyne's in the deal, like you leave Europe and never come back with your X number of troops and, uh, we'll let you live. And then regarding the fallout of China, the, the, um, the, the future of China and Russia, their relationship, I think we'll see, we won't really see any big changes. But we will see China try to increase their mediation in the conflict because of the fact that now Putin has been exposed as being a weak leader and that the Russian military is truly a, is truly not able to, is more likely not able to protect them, even though they're fighting a war, but still. If, and then with that, we'll still see a lot of the propaganda or a lot of the uh, news articles, as they say, that China actually, or the Chinese government pushed, uh, pushed out saying that Putin is a strong leader, um, a stable Russia is a strong, is a strong friend of China, is China is a strong friend of China. I think we'll still see a lot of that signaling from the Chinese media. Okay. Yes, as far as the counteroffensive goes, I'm pretty much in agreement with both of you. It's only been 20 days. Um, I, I will say what we have seen so far um, isn't great, right? There definitely needs to be a change of tactics. Um, but with that being said, again, it's early. Uh, this counteroffensive is going to go on for months. They have all the summer to get this thing done. Um, you know, for a comparison, if we were to judge the counteroffensive in Kherson, after 20 days, we would have called it a failure. And of course, we know that went on to be very successful, right? So again, a lot of time just for things to change and, and Ukraine to get its momentum going, right? Of course, they, they have their reserve that they have not committed yet as well. Um, but interesting to see what happens from here. As far as Wagner goes, uh, you know, I don't even know. It's so hard to tell, like, what the hell just happened. Um, there's still a lot of things we don't know, of course. I, I kind of do uh, agree with Sinotalk. I think th this is the beginning of things to come, for sure. Um, there's still the issue of Wagner not being able to operate on its own in Ukraine, right? Because if you're 
a fighter in the Wagner group, you have three options. You go to Belarus, you sign a contract with the military, which is what was already going to happen, right? And that's a big uh, reason that Prigozhin did this quote-unquote march for justice, right? Is because he was going to lose control over his guys. Um, or your third option is go home, right? So this deal that Prigozhin and, and Wagner have gotten doesn't really fix any of the issues that caused them to to do this mutiny in the first place. But, you know, we're in early days uh, of the aftermath of this thing, right? This thing happened on Friday and Saturday, and we're only on, uh, was it Tuesday today? Tuesday the 27th. So as time goes on, um, yeah, we'll we'll get a better idea of, of what the consequences are going to be of this. Exactly. I definitely agree. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, I, I appreciate both your time. Uh, I know I've kept you here for a little bit, but thank you both for being here. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Definitely. Thank for having me. I'm definitely open to do it again anytime. Yeah, same here, man. Thank you for having me on, even though it's like kind of out of my wheelhouse. No, I'm I'm glad you could both be here. I'd love to have you guys on anytime. Definitely. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed, of course. And yeah, we'll see you soon. All right, you guys, thank you again for listening to that podcast. We all hope you enjoyed. I'm glad I was able to have Sino Talk and John from the Defense Bulletin on just to keep you guys. Uh, locked into sort of the rough schedule we got going on here. Obviously, this one is released by the time you're listening to this up next. I got a separate podcast with Sino Talk. We're talking some China-related issues. And then probably the week after that, I'm going to release an episode I did with the owner of the Aegis Group. They're a security and intelligence company, so that should be an interesting one as well. And then, of course, I'll be releasing some news podcasts in between that as well. And again, I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. It means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite podcast apps, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We're also on uh, the new Instagram threads app, same at if you want to follow us there. We're also on Telegram, Analyze and Educate. It's the and symbol, not and spelled out. Also, again, please consider supporting us on Patreon or Ko-Fi. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast with. That really helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.